0: Welcome back to the Converge Podcast, where we help you develop a Christian worldview for a non-Christian culture. My name is Nate. <laughs> My name is Steve. You gotta, Wait, what's that? You, are you trying to be funny? That no. That was good. You, got, you totally <laughs> got... like a I cannot explain. <laughs> Welcome to the Converge Podcast, where we try to help you develop a Christian worldview in a non-Christian culture. My name is Steve. My name is Nate. And this is going to be awesome. Definitely. Again, welcome to the Converge podcast. This is where really we try to take the mission of Jesus and the doctrines of Jesus and see where they intersect with one another to apply to everyday life. This is going to be part two on protecting your kids from gender insanity that is going on in the culture around us. So if you haven't listened to part one, it might be a good time to press pause Go back and listen to part one before you get into part two, because we flesh out a lot of things in part one that we're not going to really qualify in part two. But today, uh, we really want to kind of take two paths. Uh, The first one is talking about what it really means to prepare your children for the real world, how you apply a biblical ethic to masculinity and femininity, but then also, um, you know, some pushback that, that we all always receive is on what about evangelism? You know, mm-hmm. what about, um, uh, you know, hospitality and yeah. and reaching people? Because, you know, we've heard from people like J.D. Greer that we need to use preferred pronouns, which is very unbiblical. Uh, it defies the law of non-contradiction. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, let's talk about kind of the pushback that some people give, whereas when we talk about sheltering kids, like we did in part one, People say, oh, they're not going to be prepared for the real world.
1: Yeah, and one, that's false. But two, we need to talk about how do we prepare kids for the real world. Mm -hmm. And so that's what what we want to talk about. And the answer to that is not any different than the answer to how we grow as Christians. We prepare kids for the real world by discipling them. We prepare them for the real world by teaching them truth. And so we need to have a greater commitment to that
0: in preparation for the real world. And and I think the use of the phrase real world kind of shows a faulty understanding yeah of what the world is a lot of people define the real world by secularism mm-hmm. by the gods of humanism and so for many people they've been christians for a long time but when they use that phrase real world what they kind of convey is this understanding that there is a barrier between their Christian worldview and living out a secular worldview in order to gain material things. So for the most part, a lot of parents that I talk to, they're, when they say real world, what they mean is, if I raise my kids to be Christians, they're not going to be able to make a lot of money. If I raise my kids to be Christians, <clears throat> they're not going to be accepted by non-Christians. If I raise my kids to be Christians— Um, And I'm I'm using the term Christian as a faithful, orthodox, biblical. Everything's about the Christian worldview. You really convey a faulty understanding of what the real world is, and you are submitting to a false gospel by your use of the the phrase real world. The real world is God's world. The real world is the one that is under his sovereignty. The real world is the one in which Jesus came to redeem us from our sin. So when we talk about the real world, we're talking about discipleship. When we talk about the real world, we're talking about the truth as revealed by God in his word. And that is what you need to prepare your kids for. You need to repent of the sin of defining real world by being afraid that God won't provide for them and by not having enough faith to believe That living for Christianity is worth whatever sacrifice might come. Yeah.
1: I don't want myself personally to be comfortable living just without thinking about Christ's kingdom in secular humanism. I don't want my kids to be comfortable in that. Now, here's what we're not saying. I'm not saying because I don't apply this to myself either. I'm not saying I want my kids to be ignorant I'm not saying i want my kids to i do want them to have some innocence until appropriate ages but i'm not saying by the time they're you know 15 16 17 really preparing to go out in the world that they're ignorant on who the world is or what it is but what we're trying to say is preparation for that doesn't mean comfort with it right it means being
0: wise about if you disciple your kids their natural spiritual giftings that god has put in them if you raise them and disciple them in the Christian worldview, they're going to be entrepreneurs. They're they're going uh, to be able to live out and work and gain the favor of God, gain the favor of men because of their ability to produce. So when I use when I talk about this, I very much do mean that if if your greatest hope for your child is that you want to raise them to succeed under the the conditions that are set out by sinful pagan men, and you want them to be a cog in the machine of corporate America in which they're going to have to submit to whatever uh, the CEOs of a Fortune 500 company says, whatever the pragmatism that they kneel to tomorrow is, if your greatest vision for your child is that, and that's all the vision that you have for them, I want you to understand two things. Number one, you're sinning against your child. Um, you're going to raise a non-Christian. They're, they're, they're not going to have a biblical worldview that they could have if you would raise them to be Christians. But secondly, I want you to understand that I also do not believe that you are producing the fruit of salvation in your life. And so you are, even if it's subconsciously, you are proactively rejecting the Christian worldview, and you are buying into the lies of secularism. And and that is something that you need to repent of. That is something that you need to have the faith in God to understand that if he is the Lord of heaven and earth, that Christian discipleship throughout the early years in life will set them on a trajectory of success. Yeah, It will set them on a trajectory of building something worthwhile in their lives. It will set them on a trajectory Of building something that doesn't terminate on itself, but rather it will set them on a trajectory of building something and being creative in God's world because it is worship of God. If you are the type of person that thinks the Christian worldview makes you less creative, makes you less of an entrepreneur, it makes you less of a builder in Mm -hmm. this world, then you also don't understand the Christian worldview. Uh, You know, Dr. Falwell used to say all the time, if it's Christian, it ought to be better. And I believe that. I believe that Christians should be the most creative. I believe uh, theologically Christians will build the future, Mm -hmm. that when everything is said and done, Christians will have built the future of humanity and it will be a good future. And so if you want your child to be great at business, if you want your child to be able to, to build a great home life, if you want your child to be great at just creating things, you will raise them as Christians. And your main focus will be discipleship.
1: Absolutely. So let's focus in on that. So we're talking about now gender insanity in the world, LGBT insanity, everything we talked about in part one. How do we create a positive vision on in, in those topics for our kids. I think that's really where we need to go. It's like, what does that
0: discipleship look like? Man, it, it, it's so it's so otherworldly. <laughs> you focus on fashioning in front of them a good marriage between a husband and a wife. You focus on talking about marriage between a husband and a wife. You teach your sons, and I'm talking about biological sons, mm-hmm. what it is to be a man. You teach your daughters, biological daughters, what it is to be a woman, and you set them on a trajectory to be men and women of God because they've watched you obey God, they've watched you live a biblical worldview, they've watched you, and they've been taught you are a man, you are a woman. That's what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, and just the idea that those are good things that they need to embrace. It's not complicated, but it is work that we need to do. And here's one issue that I do— think comes up with everything you just said. I think in the church, and I'm speaking very broadly, we stumble at those things because adults that are supposed to be mature don't have very good answers to what does it mean to be a masculine man? What does Mm -hmm. it mean to be a feminine woman? What does it mean to have a positive vision for marriage and children and family in the world? And so part of this is we as parents need to answer some of these questions for ourselves so that we can
0: uh, teach our kids. We've been conditioned by the world, and this is where Christians have failed, um, especially in and in, in what has been tried for most of our lives, you know, Baptists, Southern Baptists. We have said the right things, but then we have proactively tried to raise our sons and daughters under the belief <laughs> that they're the same, Right. Uh, that women have the same opportunities as men, men have the same opportunities as women. There's no distinctions in the future that you should have. And, and that has been—we've seen that that's been awful. Um, and, and I would say um, even—and I'm going to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention here—Lifeway has failed this, too, by trying to erase gender distinctions um, with, with a lot of the Bible studies that they've released from female pastors that obscures the good design of men and women where men are called to be pastors— and women are not, but they've obscured that and they've towed that line because of they want to make money. They want to sell curriculum. And so we've got to redeem that. We've got to redeem the reality that men are called to lead their family. Women are called to submit to the godly leadership of their husband. And so when you do that, you have a family that is functioning under God's design. But here's the deal. Every study, Brad Wilcox is done so many studies at UVA, uh, looking at the fact that married people who are trying and seeking to raise children are the happiest, most successful people on earth. It is a special revelation from God in Scripture, but natural revelation bears the fruits that when a man and a woman get married— younger than older, and we're talking about getting married in your 20s, and they seek, they say, you know what, we want to build a family, we want to produce children, we want to obey the mandate, be fruitful and multiply. Those people build more successful lives. They make more money, they are happier, and they're more successful in this world because there's something intuitive to the design that when you are proactively bearing the fruit that God has called you to bear, and I mean that in marriage, and I mean that in, in fatherhood and motherhood, when you're doing that, it turns something on inside mm-hmm. of you that says, I've got to create, I've got to cultivate, I've got to protect, and I've got to raise this up. And that makes you more productive in your life.
1: Absolutely. So, so we've got so many studies, and we we know this just from Scripture, but then on top of that, we've got so many even secular sociological mm-hmm. studies that tell us that Biggest indicator for life, success, happiness all across the board it's strong marriage and having kids to raise and, and having that work going on in your life. And so what's amazing to me is the lack of focus with especially teenagers in mm-hmm. that regard. We, you know, all our focus for them is how are you going to make a living? What college are you going to go to? And those things matter. But there's no focus, it seems like, for the most part, about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? How are you setting yourself up to be married? Yeah. And so we've got to be proactive about that. They're not just going to get it. We talk
0: to our kids wrongly. Yeah. We, we look at our kids and we say, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? Mm-hmm. You know, What career ambition do you have? And so we will raise our kids focused on, okay, I want to do this career And we will send them off to a college. They will have that career ambition and they will chase that career ambition. And so we've bought into the lie that after you've built your career, after you've succeeded, after you've made the money, then you start thinking about building a family. And that's backwards. We need to start developing our kids so that their great ambition is to build a family. Yeah. Because that's what's going to save the world is building a family. And building a Christian family. And so we have to raise our sons to have this vision of, okay, how are you proactively preparing? And how can I help you prepare to be a husband and father? Yeah. How, and we need to look at our daughters. How can I help you prepare? And how can I raise this child so that she will be a wife and mother? Absolutely. And, and we need to have that vision.
1: And the education and career piece falls under
0: that. It, right. it doesn't get missed. No. It's a part of that, but it puts it in its proper place. And it protects your children from having a focus on living out a design that isn't from God, yeah. but also chasing a career that's going to prevent them from raising a family. And yeah. the pushback that, that happens so much from, from lame websites like the Gospel Coalition, which isn't very gospel-y anymore, is that, well, we need to talk about God's good gift of singleness and God's good gift of singleness. This doesn't discount those that are single. This actually helps them mm-hmm. because there's one of two things going on for people who, who, who you know, they, they got that creep towards their 30s and they're not married yet. Um, number one is that they didn't prepare for marriage. All right. They didn't prepare for parenthood. And this helps them kind of readjust their vision to say, OK, what, what, what is keeping me back from that? What is it that I could change the order of my life to go in that direction? Because even if you're single, you need to have that type of a vision. Um, we always, in college, would talk about that gift of singleness from First Corinthians 7, and I think it's a terrible uh, kind of exegetical analysis of that text yeah. anyway. Uh, but it was always the gift that no one wanted right. uh, because everybody was burning in the passion of the loins. I've yet to meet the person that didn't. Um, but but there's a second thing that could be going on, and, and that is just that you haven't kind of been discipled in the right way, and you need to be discipled in the right way. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, we need to recognize— Going back to our overall topic here of protecting our kids from insanity in the culture, the culture is warring against this. Mm -hmm. It's not even that they are neutral on this topic. The culture is actively dissuading um, our kids from the importance of marriage and family. And they're they're hurting because of it. So studies are showing that. I think it's going to be way worse. You look at falling birth rates going forward. You look at later and later marriage rates. We're just now beginning to see the pain that's going to be coming from
0: the culture. There's a myth that's being propagated by elitists of overpopulation, and it's a myth. Um, God does not command us to do anything that's going to hurt the world. God has commanded we to be fruitful and multiply. Therefore, it helps the world. And so you, you need to stop buying into that lie. And you need to stop buying into this lie that you need to focus on your career and just let your kids figure this stuff out on their own. You know, well, what you know, well, what if they're called to a different way on this, that, or the other thing? And it's like God has made certain things clear that we can't feel our way out of. Yeah. And if you feel like you need to do something else, that means you need to repent. And so if you ha- if you buy into the notion, oh, my kids will figure this out. They won't, and they're not. They're not figuring it out. And then you might say, well, that's their decision. You need to help them make the right decision. They're not going to make the right decision. And I've said it before, and I think it offends some people, but some people will agree with me, and then on the back end of agreeing with me will say they're doing the opposite. (laughs) Your 18-year-old is not equipped to make lifelong decisions. Um, Your 18-year-old needs your help. And it's the old Jordan Peterson quote that when you look at an 18-year-old, you need to realize that six years ago they were 12. What do they know? Your children need your guidance. And so if you're just letting your kid make whatever decision they think is wisest at 18 – they're not going to make the best decision. You still need to be the authority over their decisions. Do I think that they need to play a pivotal role in decision making? Of course. Yeah. But do I think that you need to still hold on to that steer, excuse me, steering wheel? Yes, you do. Yeah, we got to be more proactive about promoting marriage and kids with our kids
1: while they are our kids. That's just the bottom line. we got to be more proactive about it. we got to talk about it. we got to encourage it more because right now it's happening almost not at all. And so we we do want to change that here at Village Church. Mm -hmm. We want that to be something every family is comfortable. This is part of discipleship for my kids. This is part of how I am protecting them from the evil things the culture is doing is that I'm teaching them positively what it's going to mean for them to have a family in the future. All right. So let's move on to another topic um, under this topic, and I do want to look at a passage of Scripture, uh, one that I think is really important, and that is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I think this passage um, is one of the most neglected direct teachings of scripture when it comes to how do we deal with sexual immorality in the world? Because, and I do think it's something that we're getting some pushback from, um, not a whole lot from within our church, but certainly from the culture of, hey, we are defining gender insanity, homosexuality, transgenderism as clear sexual immorality, sexual deviancy. Uh, we're not going to get into that. We're just stating that. We're comfortable in that place. That mm-hmm. is how we're defining it. But because of that, Scripture has some things to say about that topic. So I want to, I want to just read this. This is what Paul writes. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning, this is an important part here, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church who are you to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here's, I wanna talk about this verse a little bit and flesh it out, but I do think 1 Corinthians 5 is clear that those who claim the name of brother, who say that they are Christians, and then promote or glory in sexual sin, the text says they should not be associated with. And so how this needs to apply to our kids, we have to take very seriously what Paul is warning against here. He is warning against your kids should not have close friendships, close relational examples, even in adulthood, of people who claim to be Christians and yet are going to say that gender perversion Uh, sexual immorality is a righteous, good thing. We don't want that around our kids at all because that will drastically confuse them as to
0: the truth of Christianity. And there's two things going on in this text that we need to pay very close attention to. It's about putting boundaries around the gospel, which most people don't want to do right now. And it's about evangelism. It's, It's about engaging a lost world. So he's saying that if anyone says, "I'm a Christian, homosexuality is is it works with Christianity, it is not opposed to Christianity, it's accepted by God, God has reconciled me and allowed me to attain the identity of homosexuality, allowed me to sanctify same-sex attraction, allowed me to sanctify homosexual practice." That is a wolf that is a false brother. You are not to engage any friendship with that person. Now, what he's, then he's very clear. He says, I'm not talking about the outsiders, but here's where we go wrong. Is we say, oh, so so the outsiders, I'm just supposed to bring them into my community. They can belong before they can believe. And so I need to use their gender pronouns. I need to be hospitable because it's my niceness that's going to reach them with the gospel. No, what Paul is doing here, he's saying the person on the outside, they are judged. So you treat them as though they are outsiders. We want to create false distinctions that actually are inclusive rather than excluding. And the apostle is actually saying you engage the outsider with the gospel with the knowledge that they are outside of the gospel. So you're not treating the false brother and the outsider that much different. You just have to be very clear with them that they are outsiders. And the complication with our culture is we want to, and what's happening in America right now, is that they want a pluralistic society that can't endure where they say love is love. Well, that's a false doctrine. They're trying to define themselves as insiders. And so Christians have to look at 1 Corinthians 5 here and say, no, 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 you're an outsider. You will be engaged by the gospel, but you cannot partake of the covenant community that I'm inside of. We cannot treat you as though you are in our community. You are excluded by your practice, but I will engage you with the truth. I will be kind to you, but being kind is not placating your right. sin because kindness is something that we get wrong because we treat it as though it's something that terminates on itself. When the apostle Paul never contradicts himself in Ephesians chapter five, he he, go, he, he looks at it and he says, um, or see the chapter four, or chapter five, I can't remember right now, but he looks at kindness and he says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And then most of us stop and we say, see, kindness is kindness. No. He says, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. So what is the bedrock of kindness? It doesn't terminate on itself. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you have to engage the outsider as though they are an outsider. Right. And that's why the distinction of someone who claims to be a brother or not
1: matters so much. Because if they do not claim to be a brother, and this applies to how we teach our kids too they don't claim to be a brother, then we know our relationship with them is one of we are hoping that they become a brother. We we are a little more cautious. We're not going to be close, intimate friends with someone who doesn't share our worldview, our commitment to the, the kingdom of Christ. We can be friendly, or even I would even say we can be friends. You can be a, a you're a good neighbor. Yeah. It's a different category. What Paul is saying here is if that person claims to be a brother, That confuses the categories. Mm -hmm. Because then you ought to be able to be close friends with a brother. Um, You ought to share the same kingdom world views. But if that person is promoting sexual immorality, that's giving a false message to ourselves, to the world, and especially to our children. And so we need to—those verses are so stark. It says, do not associate, do not even
0: eat with such a one. The current push from from evangelicalism, the current push— from what many people call the evangelical elite, is to obfuscate things. And, you know, when people like J.D. Greer, who knows better, says you need to be hospitable and use people's preferred pronouns, he's disobeying 1 Corinthians 5. He's trying to create a system in which, and this is bad evangelism, And we've been taught by Tim Keller, it's good evangelism, but it's bad evangelism. Bad evangelism looks at somebody and says, if I obfuscate the truth long enough, you will believe in Jesus just because I'm so nice. Good evangelism oftentimes is looking at someone and saying, you're wrong, and I'd like to tell you all about it. That's good evangelism. Uh, The evangelism that wants to obfuscate the truth and treat people as though they are okay in their sin, it's not kind, and it is not loving. It's confusing the next generation, and it's going to tear down the foundation of the church so that people with ungodly ideologies, ungodly identities are going to come in. When you think about it under the laws of reason, you need to understand, and this is where evidentialism is helpful in some categories. That to call a man a woman and using he, him pronouns for someone that's clearly a woman or using she, her pronouns for someone that's clearly a man or using they, them pronouns for somebody that's clearly singular, it defies the law of non-contradiction. It is a sin to try to change a circle into a square because that is not god's design god has designed squares to be squares circles to be circles god has designed men to be men and women to be women and so when you obfuscate that you're actually introducing false doctrine you're actually embracing a false ideology into the world of christianity and you can't do that you are not going to reach someone with the true gospel they may say oh since you're you'll use my pronouns i'll believe in jesus But it would be the same way that if uh, you were in India and you reach somebody with Jesus and they say, oh, I'd like to believe in Jesus. I want to add him to my many gods. That's not conversion. You haven't converted them to anything other than false hope. People need to understand the distinctions of true Christian doctrine. So you are kind to people in that you are a good neighbor in that you will you will have discourse with them. You will seek the common good with them for their lives. But you also need to put barriers around the faith that many are trying to tear down. One recent example is Dr. James Merritt, who is a, was a former Southern Baptist Convention president. He's a pastor in Atlanta. His son is an out-of-the-closet homosexual. And his son um, is—I don't know that he's a pastor of the church that he attends, but he is a he preaches at the church that he attends in New York. And James Merritt posted— Advertised and propagated a sermon that his son did that was filled with false doctrine, mm-hmm. was filled with error, but at its base, even if he had said anything in that sermon, and it was all doctrinally true, yeah, it was fact. He 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 preached Christian doctrine. The foundation of that sermon would still be wicked because it is calling someone who is a, is involved in sexual immorality, who is a sexual deviant. It's calling that person a Christian, saying they believe and are promoting the gospel. Uh, James Merritt is unrepentant of that, and no one that has any real influence in the Southern Baptist Convention has been willing to call him out on it. So they're all compromised, yeah. and they're all in disobedience, 1 Corinthians 5. To be someone in obedience, 1 Corinthians 5, you have to look at that and say, no, you're not a christian therefore you're not a part of the church and the problem that we have is people will say but that's not nice it's kind according to the gospel to say things like that and that's the only hope that jonathan merritt the son of dr james merritt that's the only hope that he ever has of coming to faith in christ if he doesn't repent of his sexual immorality he cannot be a christian that's exactly right and um I want to talk about
1: one more aspect of this verse because I, I think it's so important to this topic of protecting our kids. Here's another thing that I think, especially when we look at our teenagers in the culture that we are in danger of, is we say, oh, well, that friend says they're a Christian, but they're really not. They're really not a Christian. So it's okay to not defy. The verse says, don't associate with them. Don't even eat with such a one. Paul felt it necessary to <laughs> extrapolate on that. And yeah. say, I'm clarifying. You can't even have lunch with them. Yeah. Um, but we say, oh, well, we know they're not really a Christian. They just say they are. Well, that is exactly what Paul is talking about. Paul is t- Paul knows they're not really a Christian. He's talking about people who claim the name of Christ. And why does that matter so much? It matters because it is incredibly confusing to our kids to have people that claim the name of Christ... Promote sexual immorality. What they then are getting the idea of is that doctrine is just a pick what you want thing. You know, some Christians can obey doctrines related to sexual immorality. Some Christians cannot, and you know, when they grow up, maybe they'll be the kind that chooses to embrace LGBT philosophy. That's the road they're headed down. If we're if we're not being clear here, so this is one that I think absolutely we are going to be accused of being mean spirited. Mm-hmm. But you need to know. If your kids have any friends that are affirming, that are promoting LGBT ideology, and they should not be friends with them if they claim the name of Christ. Right. That's the clear teaching of First Corinthians 5, 9 through 13.
0: There are so many issues that people would be better disciplers if they would obey this text. Paul was clear. You cannot live a life in which you confuse the gospel of Jesus Christ to your children and to which you allow people to self-identify as Christians, even though they're living just rampant immorality in their lives. You can't confuse your children with that. Now, we are not talking about people who struggle with sin, but still affirm
1: Christian doctrine. Of course, we all struggle with sin. We're talking about people who
0: affirm immorality, and we can understand the difference. There's a difference between somebody who's struggling with a sin and someone who is promoting a sin. If you're struggling, man, struggle well. Come on in. Let's deal with it. Let's deal with your struggles. Let me give you any help that that you need. That's kind. But when somebody comes in and says, no, this is good, and they're calling um, something that is sinful righteous— that's a totally different thing. And you have to put that person out from among you, no matter what the circumstances. You can't let sentiment guide you. You have to let God's revelation yeah. guide you. One last thing, um, then we'll move on to the next topic. But we're also not
1: talking about shunning non-Christians. Right. That text is clear about that. If they are people who say, yes, I am not a Christian, we are to engage them with the gospel. What we're talking about is protecting the faith from people who are perverting the faith. And that Correct. that really matters a lot. That They may accuse you of shunning someone, but you're not shunning a non-Christian. Right. You are
0: disassociating from someone who is lying about what Christianity is. Right. And you don't want to normalize immorality. Yeah. And I, I hope that everyone has the common sense to understand the difference. Yeah. Now, here's where this gets more complicated. And I want you to speak to
1: this. What if that person is in your family? What if that person who is claiming the name of Christ but affirming sexual immorality is a family member? You have to
0: take steps to not risk normalizing their sin for your children. You, as an adult, can, when appropriate, relationally evangelize that person, but your kids cannot do that. Yeah. I joke with my kids all the time. Um, I was uh, we were on a long trip. Recently, and uh, we were at a gas station, and I was joking with my son how tired I was. <clears throat> and I looked at him and I said, "Here's the keys. <clears throat> you drive." My son is six, and <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and what was funny about it is that he looks at me and he says, "I can't drive. I'm not old enough." Yeah. And you have a good laugh over stuff like that, and it makes sense to you. But then when we talk about living the Christian life and evangelism, we don't use any common sense. Yeah. We will look at a six-year-old and say, that six-year-old is an evangelist. He can go right. out into the world and he can engage false doctrine. <laughs> no, he can't. Your kids cannot deal with adult issues. Yeah. That's why you you keep your kids from some media and entertainment because their minds aren't ready to deal with it. You do not want to expose your children to that world too soon. Um, and, and so you need to use proper terminology about that with your kids and say, you got to set standards even around holidays. Say if this person is going to come and bring a significant other that God says should not be a significant other, then, then we're not going to be able to be there. We're, we're not going to be able to celebrate with you because we're not going to celebrate that. I'm not going to expose my children to that. And you need to stand firm. And you need to use proper terminology with your children. If it's an aunt, if it's an uncle, if it's an in-law, you know, if it's a sibling, I don't care what it is. You need to talk to your kids about the fact that, well, they're making decisions that are sinful and disobedient to God. They have a mental illness. They're practicing gross sexual perversion. And we need to start using language like deviancy with our kids. We need to stop normalizing this sin and help our kids understand that it is deviant sin. There's no way to pretty that up and you shouldn't try to pretty that up. You need to treat it as sinful as it is. God takes sexual immorality very seriously. Scripture, in scripture, he treats sexual immorality like he treats murder. Because it is such a defiance against God's good design. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We gotta use the proper terminology
1: we've got to not this is where in some sense we are advocating for not sheltering your children right i see some <clears throat> we let me let me say this i know we're talking about this because we know it's a real issue mm-hmm. i know the percentage of people in our church that probably has an LGBT identifying family member is much higher now than it was five years ago. It would probably surprise some people, but we're not ignorant. We know how many people this applies to when we're talking about this is why we're talking about it.
0: Romans 1 warns us that sin cascades. It's sin begets sin begets sin begets sin. And we live in a culture now that wants to celebrate deviancy. And it's getting worse and worse by the day, worse and worse by the year. In 2005, it was a different ballgame. Society has changed to where people in your family, because of sin in their lives and because they don't want to repent of sin, they're going to embrace deviancy and they're going to try to be more sinful and they're going to be try to be more flagrant about it because they want, because of Satan and the way that he works, they want to look at you and say, oh, you, you're filled with hate and you have to take that abuse And you have to respond with, no, I'm filled with love and a love that tells you, you need to repent of your sin, you need to trust the gospel of Jesus Christ, or you're going to face the wrath of God for eternity. It is not
1: loving to your kids, especially when they reach a certain age where they are aware of what sexual sin is. We're not talking about talking to five or six-year-olds here, but when they get to a certain Mm -hmm. age and it's coming for all of us very soon, you have to be frank with your kids about what is wrong with your uncle, Mm -hmm. about what is wrong with your aunt, your brother, Whatever it is, you have to be clear. Yeah. This is a mental illness, a gross sexual perversion that is bringing great damage into their lives. You got to be clear and set boundaries. You're not helping them at all by being unclear about those things. You have to be frank. You teach them that we're still to love them, yeah. but that they are rejecting Christ. And that because of that, you're putting boundaries up. It is never okay. And this is I, I'm just going to stand on this hill and die on it your kids are not to be around sexual perverts in a friendly, comforting environment. They're just not. And it doesn't matter
0: if they're related to them. There's no qualification for that. Uh, if, if If you let perverts have any authority, if you let perverts have any influence in your child's life, you have sinned against your child. I think at some point I'm going to
1: put a dot here. We're going to Need to do another podcast just talking yeah. about homosexuality in general, because what I'm about to say, um, I am never going to say that homosexual sin and heterosexual sin are the same thing. They're not. And so we probably need to explain oh, that man. a little bit you're, more. You're killing you killing me here. But here's what I want to say, though. If I have a brother who is a heterosexual pervert and is in all kinds of open heterosexual sin that he just... Displays and talks about my kids aren't hanging out with him either,
0: right? And I think that's what people don't understand. It's not we're not singling out homosexuality. In I guess we are in the sense that it is the prevailing wind of the day, so we have to talk about it more. But the same rules apply for adultery, serial adulterers. The same rules apply for serial fornicators. Anyone in in complete just defiance of God, wants to live a lifestyle of sexual immorality in any way, they're going to face that biblical reaction. All right. Where do we want to go next? <laughs> uh, I, I think the big thing that I'm seeing in society right now and that Christians are struggling with is that they want to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're confused as to how do we reach people who embrace homosexuality, people who embrace transgenderism, people who are struggling with this sexual deviancy in their identity, how do we reach them with the gospel? Because for so long, we have given this strategy where it's like, well, you you build a relationship before you engage them with the truth of Jesus Christ. You you have to—and and it was just such a false view that Dan Kimball put out many, many years ago when when I was first getting into ministry, this this idea that someone needed to belong before they believed, and that's not a biblical idea. They don't belong because they are not reconciled um, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to give them this false view that they're a part of the community of God before they've repented of their sin, before they've been born again, before they've been regenerated, that gives people a false assurance that their lifestyle is compatible with christianity no matter what that lifestyle is Mm -hmm. and we're now in 2022 we're facing the fruit of that type of false doctrine in churches where it was just like a free-for-all where now people um even in churches in this area they're allowing homosexuals to be members of their church they're you know allowing homosexuals to to really engage in church leadership and so many people are catching heat from the culture Because we're we're having to say, no, they can't be a member of the church. And the problem is a lot of people, and and Erwin McManus uh, faced a lot of cultural heat because he tried to hide that um, until a person got to a certain level in their church. And then finally, one person that was a member of the church who was seeking to become a leader of the church, they reached a certain point and was finally told, no, 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 no. If you're practicing in a moral lifestyle, you can't be a leader of the church. And that person was shocked. And they actually went public with that yeah. information. And so the question where evangelism is concerned for me is, at what point of the discipleship process are you going to be honest with a homosexual that they have to stop practicing that lifestyle? That is not something that God accepts, that same-sex attraction is something to be repented of. At what point? Now, what's happening right now in society is is that point is getting further and further. And you see it in the PCA. You're even seeing it in the SBC in some places where people are saying, "Well, okay, well, that point never comes. You just accept that they have same-sex attraction. They stay celibate forever. And some people are even saying that they stay celibate but they're allowed to have what they're calling platonic homosexual relationships, which don't exist. And some people are going further and saying, well, they're allowed to have monogamous homosexual relationships. As long as you obfuscate the reality of what the work of the gospel is in your life, and this is antinomianism that looks and says, well, no real change has to take Mm -hmm. place for you to be a Christian. It's just a set of beliefs. It's not. There's life change. There's God's law. There's something to obey for you. And so you have to look at somebody, I think, from the outset and say, if you, just like Jesus looked at Nicodemus, you must be born again. And you have to define that for a lot of people. You have to say, here's what it looks like. If you are a homosexual, being born again is repentance of homosexuality. It is labeling it as a sin, it is realizing that it breaks God's law, and it is what you need to be saved from to be saved to a reconciled relationship with God you need to be honest from the outset and here's the example that i often use with people if somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and because it's legal to get a marriage license for a homosexual couple in the state of Virginia somebody comes to you and they say i want to believe in Jesus Christ i want to follow him i want to be a christian at that point if you do not look at that person and say Following Jesus, Luke 9, you got to take up your cross and follow him. If you want to follow Jesus, you—and here it's the only biblical divorce that exists. If you want to follow Jesus, you and your partner have to get divorced. You have to move out. You have to separate. You cannot be romantically intertwined any longer if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you do not, at that point, look at that person and say that, you're lying because you know the truth— you're hiding it from them. They must separate. They must repent of homosexuality. And we want to be so nice to people that we believe we can just nice them along. And yes, we need to practice biblical hospitality. We need to, we need to engage that person. I think some people go too far in that, and it hurts the next generation. But we need to be honest with people in that if you're living an LGBT plus lifestyle, then it is something that you're going to need to repent of, along with a host of other sins. Now, overnight, are you going to have freedom from temptation? Probably not. It has happened, but the Holy Spirit doesn't usually work that way. Sanctification is a lifelong process of repenting of sins so that you can become more obedient to Jesus Christ. The temptation will be there. The struggle will be there. But you must take steps to proactively repent of that sin. And to not get that and to not be honest about that really just obfuscates the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think that's all important because I do think rightly
1: people are wondering, okay, we understand we need to draw clear boundaries with our kids. We need to use language that is going to appear harsh to the world, you know, very clear language about perversion and mental illness and sexual deviancy. That is all important for our children to help them understand um, what the stakes are Mm -hmm. in following Jesus and and how terrible sin is. But we do all those things, and this is what your your answer just kind of spoke to this. We do all those things. Isn't that going to make it so difficult for homosexuals uh, to come to faith in Christ? And so, one, no, because uh, we have to be clear about what the truth is. But two, we do need to recognize... And this is absolutely reality that the the brokenness of our culture has indeed made it more difficult for homosexuals to come to mm-hmm. Christ. And that, that is a tragedy that we need to admit. Yeah. But we don't let that tragedy keep us from
0: discipling our kids. But the answer isn't to confuse it. Absolutely. And I think that's what right. a lot of evangelical, a lot of Christians are doing right now right. is they're confusing it. It's a simple issue in many regards. So if somebody comes up to you and says, is murder a sin? Yes. Is stealing a sin? Yes. Is lying a sin? Yes. Is adultery a sin? Yes. Is homosexuality a sin? Well, let me tease that out for you. Right. It, that's bad evangelism. Yeah. That's making something very obscured and very foggy, very muddy, that doesn't need need to be that way. Everything that I just said yes to could be teased out, might need to be teased out for a person to understand all the implications. But if somebody can't look at you when is asked the question, is homosexuality a sin? If they don't immediately say yes, you can't trust that person. And there's there's you can't. And there's another aspect to this, too,
1: is what if someone says, "Okay, murder is a sin? How bad is it? Right. <laughs> you're gonna need yeah. to be honest. <laughs> yeah,
0: you, you, you're gonna you're gonna give an honest answer, but we tiptoe around yeah. whatever the prevailing sin of the day is, yeah. and we can't do that and have credibility at the same time. And so, what we're doing yeah. by soft peddling these sins that the scriptures treat as big sins, and yes, there are big sins. And there are smaller sins. The scripture does not treat every sin as uh-huh. equal. I would, and that's a natural thing. I would rather you slap me in the face in anger than shoot me in the head in anger. Common sense dictates right. those are those are, ones extreme ones less so. But homosexuality, where transgenderism is concerned, the world will not believe when we muddy it. The yeah. world will be held accountable by God when we're upfront about it in love, saying, yes, it is a sin. Let me explain why it is a sin. And let me also explain how Jesus suffered the greatest suffering of all time to save you from that sin. If you can't be that clear, you cannot be trusted. And that that is to any pastor.
1: Yeah.
0: You're not helping by not being clear. You're not helping by not standing for biblical morality. You are hurting your children, you're hurting your yeah. church. But here's what people don't realize. You're hurting homosexuals. Yeah, You're hurting people that are struggling with transgenderism right now. And we have a host of 17-year-olds that are struggling with gender identity because no one's willing to love them by being honest with them. Yeah. Everybody just wants to kick the can down the road because they're afraid they might not respond. Well, here's the deal. Many won't. Right. Many will continue to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the answer isn't to let them go in their sin. And to give you an example of a heterosexual reality of this, I have dealt with many instances where someone has cheated on their spouse, and this has even happened to men in pastoral ministry, where they've cheated on their spouse and then become atheists. Why did they become atheists? Because it is easier to continue in your sin and deny God than it is to repent of your sin and admit that you were wrong if the Holy Spirit isn't wooing you to salvation. It's no different for homosexuals. You have to be honest with them. You have to. You have to. Uh,
1: there's no doubt that in our culture, and we've, we've seen this in our 10 years, 12 years, 13 years almost, of ministry. Yeah. We've seen this, that it is more difficult now for a homosexual to come and attend an evangelical church. When we first started, got several emails the first few years, hey, can I come? I'm I'm a homosexual. Can I come to your church? And we'd respond with clarity. Yes. We believe it's a sin. We're going to preach what the Bible says, but we would love for you to come. And we even had examples of people coming and hearing the
0: gospel message. We had one lady that was in a lesbian lifestyle, and she attended our church for over two years. Yeah, absolutely. And the. Here's the reality.
1: God can still do that, but it doesn't happen as much anymore because of compromised churches. Right. Because they're just going to find a church that doesn't, is not honest and just says, oh, no, that's fine. That's a tragedy. We can't change it, though, by changing truth. Here's the other criticism that I hear sometimes. Um, We don't need to talk so clearly about LGBT issues because the culture knows where the church stands. They just need to, to hear about love. I hear that criticism a lot, and I just I completely reject it, and here's why. Um, they're living in the past. That's 2005, man. Like, things have changed that drastically since then. No, the culture does not know. And the most ignorant, to, to wrap all this up with the topic that we're talking about, with protecting our kids from gender insanity, our kids aren't going to know, growing up in this culture, that, um, Defying God's good design and gender is a sin. If we are not clear about it and we don't talk about it, because they do not
0: know, no. because it is confused in our culture. Yeah, it, it it's confused, not just in our culture, but it's confused in our churches. It's confused yeah. in yeah. the in right. what's happening. And the sad thing that's happening right now is many of the people and men who were the most influential pastors uh, ten years ago and who have mega churches. They're compromising because they believe that they need to keep Mm -hmm. the favor of pagan culture rather than stand for the truth of the gospel. And they do need to stand for the truth of the gospel because that's where the favor of God is. Um, Remember last year at the SBC convention, we were there, and they kept uh, saying, "You know, oh, you know, we need to uh, to show a united front because the world is watching. God was watching." That was more important than the world is watching, and when God is watching, people will come to faith in Jesus Christ, but we need to realize that it is only through repentance of their sin and submission to the truth of God. But here's the good news. The good news is culture will come around, people will repent of their sin, but they will only repent through the power of the Holy Spirit who is invested in the truth of God's Word. And so when culture comes around, and culture is going to come around sooner than later on many of these things, because so much of what we're seeing in culture happen right now is becoming sexual insanity, right? and, and the common grace of God won't allow that. But secondly, the gospel will triumph over all things. Yeah. If you want to be on the right side of history, it is not compromising the ideals of biblical doctrine to make your son or daughter uncle or cousin, you know, whatever it is that's struggling with sexual sin. Yeah. The triumph of the gospel isn't going to be because you submitted to their false doctrine. Yeah, The triumph of the gospel is going to come because we stand on biblical ethics. We stand on biblical morality. We stand for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we confront a culture with loving intentions without any animosity towards them and say, repent of your sin. Trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. So have hope, but don't be naive. Confront this issue head on. I think there's great reason
1: to have hope for our kids in confronting the gender insanity of the culture because it can't go on forever. It is falling apart. We're seeing it in real time. I don't know if it's going to last five more years, 10 more years, 20. I just know that my kids are going to be better off knowing the truth of God's good design for their gender, respecting marriage, valuing family. I know that my kids are going to come out ahead in culture because of that. So in a selfish way, I have hope for them. But then also I have hope for their evangelism because I do hope that there are going to be so many refugees from this culture who have been hurt by all the sexual sin and sexual immorality, that's rampant telling lies, hurting people. And they're going to come to our kids for the answer.
0: And so I have a lot of hope because of that. Biblically speaking, when God's people's backs are against the wall is where you see God do the most miraculous of things. Uh, Doug Wilson once said that when you're surrounded by the enemy and there's more of them than there are of you, you've got them right where you want them. Because they're not equipped to build society. We are. Yep. Build Christian education, build Christian view of career, build Christian view of home, create for the sake of humanity, and you will be a part of building God's future. Well, I hope uh, this has been a helpful podcast and we have put the fun back in fundamentalism for you. Do us a favor. Uh, leave a five-star review for us. If you're on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and maybe leave a couple of sentences talking about how great Steve and Nate are and how smart we are. And that would be helpful and it would go a long way uh, to getting the word on this podcast out. But again, thank you for being a part of the Converge podcast. See you in two weeks.